Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. In this episode of Integrative Oncology Talk, I welcome Dr. June Mao, who's the chief of the Integrative Medicine Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Mao is a family physician and licensed acupuncturist and a past president of the Society of Integrative Oncology. He is a leading researcher in integrative oncology, especially in acupuncture for symptom management and patient-centered outcomes research in integrative oncology. In this episode, we're going to highlight the Society for Integrative Oncology conference in 2019, and we're also going to talk about the integrative medicine services at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which has just completed its 20th year. We'll also focus on some of the research at Memorial Sloan Kettering, especially acupuncture for symptom management. Hi, June. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, hi, Santosh. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much. Um, We've been spending a lot of time together, I know, on this year's SIO conference for Society for Integrative Oncology. We're both co-chairs along with Ting Bao. Um, I'm very excited about the conference, and I wanted to talk about that, but I think there are many listeners who may not know what the Society for Integrative Oncology is. So Society of Integrated Oncology is an international, interprofessional organization that is dedicated to use uh, science to drive evidence practice of complementary and integrative therapies for patients affected by cancer. It was established uh, about 16 years ago, right here in New York City. Awesome. How did this get started? What was the motivation? I was actually not at the beginning. Um, I think the founder, Barry Catholic, uh, was the former uh, chief of integrated medicine service at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, recognized in order for a field to really grow professionally, uh, especially attract individuals who are uh, adhering to rigorous research and uh, careful clinical innovation and education. We need a professional society that brings these people together to work together to advance uh, this area of medicine. And it's such a unique organization because it's so diverse. We have physicians, we have nurse practitioners, but we also include patient advocates, licensed acupuncturists, uh, practitioners of yoga. So there's such a breadth of different perspectives that, that come to meet in this organization. But the real thrust of it is for us to focus on the evidence and trying to further our scientific uh, practice of integrative oncology so that we can you know, practice alongside and and further benefit those who are, you know, taking advantage of conventional care. Yes. I think the key defining feature of integrated oncology is evidence-informed and patient-centered. And really, it seeks to bring all the important components of care, such as uh, mind-body therapies, lifestyle modifications, natural products, together with the conventional uh, oncology um, treatments rather than instead. And uh, also the goal is to really allow patients not necessarily be passive recipients of these therapies, but become active participants throughout the entire cancer care continuum from prevention, active treatment, survivorship. Uh, So I think our field has really evolved over the last 20 years and really the, uh, the SIO has been this sort of a uh, glue 
to bring people from all over the world and from multiple disciplines together with the single mission to really drive the science and practice of integrated oncology. Thank you, June. You were the last uh, president uh, for SIO. And can you tell us what the latest achievements have been for SIO and where you think we're heading? I think the SIO has really made a lot of strides in recent years. Um, uh, just name a few. Uh, first of all, our clinical guidelines has been really cited extensively in both uh, scientific journals as well as by uh, media coverage. And most recently, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, really a leading figure, professional figure in the practice of oncology has endorsed our guideline and published in the uh, JCO, really the go-to journal for clinical oncology, endorsing our clinical guideline for women with breast cancer. And, uh, and also as a society, recently we helped define uh, the definition for integrated oncology, really delineate as different from alternative medicine or complementary medicine. I, I do think um, there's still a lot of, uh, I would say, naysayers of integrated oncology. Having a clear definition will allow the field to have more focus and also to really help uh, our patients, cancer patients, to not be confused about alternative medicine and integrated oncology. And the other uh, achievements we have in recent years, we have published two monographs. One is the integrated oncology for cancer survivorship. The other is for the, inter uh, the impact of integrated oncology for global cancer delivery, both in the prestigious uh, journal National Cancer Institutes. I think this cannot be accomplished without a professional organization of SIO. And uh, in addition, our annual conference, um, and Santosh, you did a, such a great job last year in um, Arizona, the beautiful uh, Arizona attracted over 400 people. And it really shows the strength of this growing field and also the just the excitement in the rooms uh, and also the to see how much progress we have made in our research and the uh, delivery of care, uh, uh, keep attracting new talents and in both uh, conventional medicine and integrated health uh, field. So uh, individuals working together to really push the envelope on both the science and clinical care delivery. Yeah, the promise of SIO is starting to come to fruition in the sense that there's some acceptance by some of these larger organizations that we're really promoting the science of integrative oncology and doing good studies and improving our research methodology so that we can really figure out where we can apply these complementary therapies and really finding their evidence basis so this becomes some legitimate options for helping patients. I also think there's a lot of interest in SIO and in integrative oncology as well from other countries. Part of integrative oncology is that we often incorporate medicinal practices and cultural practices and approaches from around the world. And we know that integrative approaches are used in different ways around the world. So can you take us through how people are getting involved internationally and where some of that movement is in SIO? Uh, I think one defining feature for SIO is uh, it is an international organization. It's not just an American organization. And, uh, and I think we have uh, over 20 countries from different parts of the world represented in the organization. As Santosh, as you have said, uh, um, in complementary medicine, such as uh, traditional Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine, or many of the European herbal traditions uh, and Native American um, uh, healing practices are very cultural. And cancer is a disease that really affects the core in the individual, not just physically, it really challenges us in about the meaning of life, about our cultural identity. So ignoring those cultural practices are particularly harmful for individuals during a type of time of vulnerability. And integrated oncology really focuses on recognizing and embracing those cultural um, practices, but also helping guide patients to evidence the oncological treatments. So patients don't forego life-saving cancer treatments to just believe a herb will cure their cancer, but also then recognize there are a lot of things that are positive and good 
by actively engage in integrative uh, complementary therapy practices such as yoga, organic acupuncture for symptom management, and taking herbs judiciously during treatment survivorship, maybe addressing symptoms, improving their sense of coping. So I, I do think uh, as the field moves forward, SIO can play a huge role in really not only help guide the practice of integrative medicine in cancer care in North America, but more broadly, uh, you know, in Europe, Australia, in Asia, also in South America and Africa. And I think a really important role that is still under uh, developed that we should uh, challenge our field to move forward is uh, how does integrated oncology can help improve the rates of cancer screening and delivery in those populations that people may be uneducated or have low access to conventional cancer screening program, treatment, or supportive palliative care. And how does integrated oncology can fit into this picture to really promote prevention, treatment, and appropriate end of life care? I think those are really exciting questions. We need to do research. We also dare to challenge the conventional norm. Thanks, June. Um, I definitely feel like those are all highly important areas for us to focus on. Uh, we have a very, very exciting conference that you and I and, and Ting have been working on. Let's talk a little bit about the conference itself that's coming up and what some of the most uh, interesting topics that we're going to be hitting. So the conference itself is going to be in New York, and you and others from Memorial Sloan Kettering are hosting this conference. It's October 19th through the 21st. We have a great array of speakers. Um, I want to ask you about some of the speakers and their topics, and let's just chat about how important all these topics are. So uh, one of our keynote speakers is Lee Jones, and he's going to be talking about exercise and its impact on cancer survivors. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of exercise and what's been shown when it comes to cancer and cancer survivorship? First of all, I, I just cannot say enough positive things about Lee Jones. He is a dear colleague of mine at MSK, the Chief of Exercise Oncology. Lee really brings this uh, very sharp and critical lens to the research and to study the mechanism of potentially harnessing exercise as a, a, a druggable intervention to really to figure out what the appropriate dose, appropriate type of exercise, how does that can be embedded in the cancer care delivery can affect in both oncological outcomes and also potentially important late effects such as cardio toxicity. So I think this will be a really exciting keynote. Uh, what we currently know is exercise can have a lot of positive uh, impact on quality of life and functions during cancer treatment survivorship. There are good conducted clinical trials on this topic, such as fatigue. However, the benefit of exercise for uh, cancer prevention as well as uh, survival outcomes, those are largely due to uh, observational studies. Uh, I think the causal relationship are pretty strong, but they are not as strong as I would say randomized control trials. And uh, one of the board member, Jennifer Ligabo, uh, from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard School of Medicine, is currently leading some of the large initiative in the area of breast cancer using large randomized control trial to see whether lifestyle intervention can improve cancer outcomes. We're really eager to hearing the results of those studies. Right, because many of the studies, like you said, are observational, just kind of taking into account when people answer, have you been exercising such and such amount after your diagnosis? It, we know that for breast, colon, and prostate cancer, for example, those individuals who exercise more have better outcomes, but it's always been a question as to whether the exercise is a causative factor in, in improving outcomes or whether it's just a, you know, uh, another sign that somebody is... Um, you know, more functional at that time or, um, you know, so that's where the, you're saying the, the interventional studies are needed, right? Yes, I, I think that will strengthen the evidence base for this area. Great. I want to go to our next keynote speaker is Don Hirschman. 
And she's going to be talking about the safety of integrative medicine, for example, acupuncture and natural supplements for cancer survivors. I know that that's a, a huge area of, of concern, you know, with the attorney general in New York had uh, come out against some of the safety and, uh, and accuracy of labeling for some of the natural supplement products in New York at some major stores. Where, what do you see as, as the barriers or the ways that we can make integrative medicine safe and assured that people are getting what they need? So Don Hirschman uh, is uh, one of the rare uh, uh, breed of uh, in oncology. She ha not only have a breast medical oncology expertise, she's also a really outstanding clinical epidemiologist. She's the, the leader for the breast uh, program in the Columbia University. And Dan has done really large, important um, research in the area of uh, both natural uh, products as well as acupuncture for symptom control in cancer survivors. She recently published her large phase three study of acupuncture for joint pain related to aromatase inhibitors in breast cancer survivor population um, in the JAMA, really considered one of the the leading journal in medical journal showing a specific efficacy of acupuncture for symptom control in women with breast cancer. I think that's going to be a practice-changing trial. But at the same time, she has also done studies on fish oil or on other type of natural product for symptom control in um, uh, breast cancer populations. And uh, I think uh, we're very eager to hearing her talk about um, how did she learn from the research she conducted I think uh, in particular uh, uh, for fish oil, uh, it's kind of interesting. The primary findings were overall negative for joint pain related to AIs. But then if you look at those individuals with high baseline triglyceride, and also for those patients who are obese at baseline, actually fish oil was more efficacious than placebo. Again, it can sort of point out to us maybe with natural supplements, there's a need for personalization and precision natural supplements. Um, not everybody should be taking everything. Maybe for people who have certain set of biomarkers such as high triglyceride, they may benefit from sort of a, a certain type of product can maybe uh, more beneficial for those sort of a, a biological process. So I think we need to get a uh, really using scientific principles advance our natural product research rather than everybody should take curcumin, everybody should take mushroom, maybe for people with certain type of biological features, certain type of natural product has beneficial effect. And I think until we are approaching our scientific questions like how oncology researchers approaching how oncological drugs are useful for certain outcomes, we're not gonna give the patients what they need. Uh, so I think uh, well, I, I'm really excited to hear what he she has to say about this area of research. And I think one other area that's very interesting along those lines is using predictive markers or biomarkers to help, uh, you know, be more precise in natural supplements or even with, you know, activities such as yoga and other things like that, correct? Totally agree. I think it's a really uh, the precision medicine, I think, will not only drive how we develop oncological drugs, but really should also be the guiding force of delivering healthy lifestyles or mind-body therapies. Great. Let's talk next about another wonderful speaker, Jamie Von Rowan, who is an expert on palliative and supportive care in cancer patients. Tell us a little bit more about what she's going to be talking about and this relationship between palliative care and integrative oncology and how that is part of a larger theme of supportive oncology. Jamie has a huge leadership role in uh, ASCO, and I think we're very honored to have her participate. Um, part of the integrated oncology is a specific field within the broader area of the practice of uh, cancer care. So this year's theme is advancing the arts and science of integrated oncology. So very much of about practice of medicine is not just about science, it's actually how do you deliver the science artfully. I think integrated oncology can learn a lot about uh, this area from the, our field of palliative care. How do we communicate uh, about certainty and uncertainty? How do we support 
patients even when treatments fail, right? How do we help people navigate the uncertain terrain of end of life, but help them to die with dignity? I think we're going to learn tremendous amount from Jamie. And also uh, I, as a person practicing uh, in a, I would say a tertiary or quaternary cancer center, I really think there ought to be more collaborations uh, between integrated oncology and palliative care. Because often our goals are very similar. We help people address difficulty symptoms. We also help individuals to gain sense of control and identify their meanings in life. And I think there's more similarity than differences. But really, as we develop those programs, how do we promote more collaborations rather than silos? Uh, and that's why I'm really looking forward to hearing what Jamie has to say about this. I agree. I mean, if you go to any hospice center, uh, many of them are offering, you know, quote unquote, integrative approaches for pain, such as acupuncture, etc. So I think they're very open to collaborating. And this is a, a very natural fit for us to to collaborate with each other and work within that space. Um, she also talks a lot about spirituality, correct? In integrative oncology, um, having hope and purpose and um, social support, those kind of things. I think she's going to be talking about that. Uh, the, the title for her talk is Lessons from Loss. So I'm very, very interested to hear from her. We also have a uh, former Nobel Prize winner, uh, in medicine, Michael Young. Uh, I think he won the Nobel Prize in 2017, if I'm correct. Yes. And he is, he is going to be talking about the circadian rhythm and its impact on cancer. And then we're following that up with another session on insomnia. But can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, Dr. Young and then the importance of the circadian rhythm in cancer? So Dr. Michael Young is uh, really uh, renowned for his uh, pioneering work in circadian rhythm and the importance of that for health. And he's from the Rockefeller University, really our neighboring institute. Uh, um, and uh, I do think, you know, there's so much we begin to understand the importance of circadian rhythm and good sleep for health from cancer or dementia or, or cardiovascular health or depression. And uh, I don't know about you, is that in, in my integrated medicine clinic, uh, I'm so surprised about the rates of insomnia sleep, sleep disturbance uh, in our cancer patient survivors. Often the patients that you're the first person to ask me about my sleep. <laughs> well, that that becomes a, a you know a topic of conversation in and of itself because almost everybody has some sleep disturbance when they're going through this process. Many times, if they're going through chemo, their sleep cycles are are disrupted by steroids, by just the whole schedule. Um, but then, obviously, anxiety will contribute to that. So uh, that ends up being a basket for everybody's problems. When people have this much going on, that's just an area that not only um, is automatically disrupted by all these things, but then it creates its own problems and um, can contribute to fatigue. I totally agree. And the good news is there are really effective uh, psychological and integrative therapies. That's why the plenary follow Dr. Young's keynote uh, uh, by after we understanding the biology of sleep, then really reviewing some of the current evidence-based therapies such as uh, uh, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, Tai Chi, meditation, yoga, and acupuncture. So really how do we package it together for our patient during the face of active treatment or survivorship really to provide patients appropriate diagnosis, then more importantly, treatment. So cancer patients can sleep well during and beyond treatment. And uh, we are also extremely fortunate that we um, uh, received a PCORI uh, engagement award to really offer scholarship for patient advocates as well as clinicians to come together to learn about this so they can then be the sort of uh, the spreader of the knowledge to the broader community. June, can you just uh, highlight what does PCORI mean? PCORI is a Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. It's a non-for-profit institute that receives uh, congressional funding to really encourage the generation of patient-centered research evidence, but also appropriate dissemination of this knowledge and trans, uh, transform care 
to really gear towards uh, promote patient-centered decision-making as well as clinical care. And that's a that's an area of research that you're heavily involved in, correct? Yes, yes. I have been incredibly fortunate to receive funding from uh, PCORI to conduct a study on uh, acupuncture versus uh, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. And I recently received another funding for PCORI I'm about to launch is to study how massage compared with acupuncture for pain management in patients with advanced cancer. So I think those are really important questions for both patients and clinicians. Traditionally, they may not fit into the biomedical research mode because they're studying act, how active interventions fare against each other. Typically, drug trials are comparing with drug versus placebo. But really, for a patient confronted with terrible pain or terrible sleep issues, they need to figure out how to choose the best treatment for them. So I think this type of research is really critically important to advance the field of integrated oncology. So can you give us an example talking about the study you did with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and acupuncture for insomnia. How was that you know, different than maybe other studies? And how would a study that focuses on patient-centered outcomes be conducted? Yeah, so for example, in this particular study, we enrolled uh, all type of cancer. So we have a, a, about a third of patients, uh, we have six, 160 patients, a third of them had breast cancer, and then about 25% had prostate cancer. Then we have lung, head and neck, pancreas, all kinds of cancers. Until my trial was done, the 90% of previous trials conducted on cognitive behavior therapy in cancer are all women with breast cancer. Certainly that's a very important population. And then that's probably... Uh, consider a really good rigorous design uh, from a National Institute of Health perspective. But really from answering patients, we have so many other types of cancer patients, they're never really included in those studies, right? right. So this is one example how PCORI funded research has a more broader sort of eligibility. The second aspect is uh, our study compared the effectiveness between this treatment. For example, we are seeing, you know, overall the CBTI was more effective for acupuncture for insomnia severity. However, in individuals with baseline pain, that's about, you know, a good 60% of them because cancer patients don't just have insomnia, often they have pain as well. Then the acupuncture works just as well as CBT for insomnia, but in addition, acupuncture was better for pain than CBTI, right? So then say, Sanders, you have a patient in your clinic, if they just have insomnia without pain, if they're debating with these two treatments, I think CBTI is a clear winner. But if you have a patient with both pain and insomnia, I think acupuncture could be a really good choice because it, it really targets both pain and insomnia at the same time rather than this person need to get pain treatment, this person can get uh, insomnia treatment because cancer patients have so many appointments, right? To get one treatment can target multiple all, outcomes is a really ideal situation. But I don't think those questions are typically explored in the traditional research domain. So I do think uh, by doing more PCORI type of research, we can get to the question really matter to the patients at the time of their appointment. That's so important. You know, just finishing up with the conference, there's uh, one other element of the conference that I find really, really exciting. There's this traditional Chinese medicine track and we're also really, really trying to reach out to our international attendees. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I, I think uh, SIO being an international organization, we have the uh, responsibility to promote collaboration because cancer has no borders and nationalities. Cancer is a horrible disease that affects people regardless of where we live. Um, so, so I think this, is, this track is a good example how uh, the researchers are scholars from Western countries and uh, can come together with researchers from China and Asian countries. Then we put together this track that goes through four specific uh, uh, sort of uh, sessions with session one talking more about uh, research methods, uh, novel clinical trial design, issues with patient report outcomes, uh, as well as uh, research methods. The second session focused on symptom management uh, in the area of integrated oncology, uh, how uh, traditional Chinese medicine, herbs, as well as uh, acupuncture, other practices can affect symptoms. 
The third is really focus on traditional Chinese medicine in lung cancer. And the last but not least is focus on traditional Chinese medicine for colorectal cancer. So I think by having this sort of specific TCM track, hopefully we can help uh, those people who practice in this area, whether you are a conventional oncologist or you're an acupuncturist practicing in the community or academic cancer centers or your patient advocate, you can learn how the existing research evidence and where the field is going. But also we hope to get more clinician feedback as well as the feedback from patients. How do we continue to drive the research forward in this area? Do you find that there's great interest in East Asia and other uh, parts of the world in collaborating in such a manner? I absolutely think so. I think uh, often uh, there's the language barriers uh, to make it difficult to uh, collaborate. Uh, the time zone difference is also challenging. <laughs> And, uh, but also, you know, often there's unforeseen political things and stuff. But I do think as the doctors, as well as scientists, our role is for our patients. And our role is responsible 20 years from now, how can we have more effective uh, and more evidence-based treatment for our patient? If we really focus on what is important to that, we can overcome any kind of barriers. But it really requires people to reach out to each other and to work together. Great. And uh, I'm excited that this year's conference is going to be hosted by Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And that was where the first SIO conference was, right? Something like 20 years ago. Is that correct? Yes and no. So the Integrated Medicine Service was established in that was 20 years ago at uh, MSK as the first uh, such integrated medicine sort of a program in the academic cancer center. So this year we're celebrating 20th year. And the SIO was established 16 years ago in collaboration with uh, MSK. And the first conference was hosted in New York. So we're really happy to, to come back to New York City, um, one of the most exciting and vibrant cities of the world, uh, to host this conference. And, uh, and also we are very excited to share what we have learned over the 20 years in integrated medicine at MSK with the rest of the field and from uh, also with people from the world. As I, I'm getting a lot of emails from people in Italy, in Australia, in China, in Korea, in Japan, uh, express a lot of interest wanting to come to this conference. Um, in part is, uh, I do think 20 years is an important milestone for our field. And uh, we have accomplished a lot, but yet we still have a lot left to do. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, first, um you know, your program is built uh, off of the predecessors that have come before you. You mentioned Barry Castleth and others. Uh, Gary Deng uh, has been there for a long time. And now you have amazing people there, including yourself, um, Ting Bao, who's going to be the next SIO president. And you guys have an amazing uh, integrative medicine uh, service that uh, really uh, fulfills many, many needs and is uh, practiced throughout the system at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I think when I've been there, uh, what I've really been amazed at is the educational programs, as well as how much is being done on the inpatient side, which you don't see everywhere. Um, you guys have, I think, yoga, uh, acupuncture, and massage uh, for uh, inpatients, music therapy, uh, am I missing anything there? We also have uh, dance therapy for children with cancer, as well as uh, martial arts for children with cancer, children and teens. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. And it's really a culture uh, in Memorial Sloan Kettering. Tell me how you feel integrative medicine is viewed at this you know, leading cancer center in the world, how integrated it is, and what your colleagues say about integrative medicine there. I, I think I really benefited from, uh, you know, Barry Kessler's work as well as all our faculty and staff who have dedicated to um, this field. I have only joined the service about four years ago, coming from University of Pennsylvania, really helped to lead this service to the next level. Um, I think over the years, uh, integrated medicine has really evolved from this field, like nobody knows what to do with it to uh, recognize the specific discipline with unique expertise to contribute. 
Like for example, now if patients have a lot of sort of symptoms of pain, hot flashes, sleep issue, many of the oncologists uh, consider us as almost like a primary line of referral before they actually start putting patient on antidepressant for their hot flashes. And uh, is that everybody? Probably no, but there's a substantial amount of them. So our services are incredibly busy. And, um, and also I feel what is really changing is uh, we're seeing as a specific uh, sort of a domain of medicine rather than just feel good services. So we recently are classified in the division of specialty medicine. So in that division, there is cardiology, gastroenterology, renal, infectious disease, the traditional sort of subspecialty services in medicine. So now as the integrated medicine drawing that division is that we really are becoming a specific academic discipline that have unique medical knowledge to contribute to the practice of medicine. I think that's where integrated medicine want to go, is we are not just feel good, we actually can help solve specific issues patients confront that is medical, psychological, and potentially spiritual. Well, you guys are really leaders in both practice and in education. I think on the practice front, there are some very novel things that are being done at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering's Integrative Medicine Center. One thing I found really interesting when I was there was that uh, the group acupuncture practice. Tell us about group acupuncture and what some of the benefits are in terms of how we deliver acupuncture at a lower cost. I think this is where our field uh, really need to continue to drive ourselves to move forward. Uh, until we have brought insurance coverage, we need to figure out how do we uh, make the services more affordable and accessible by patients across uh, the social economic domains. And uh, acupuncture itself is not hugely expensive compared to the rest of medical costs associated with cancer. But it is well documented there's a lot of financial toxicity our patients experience. So our group acupuncture is based on the model is we deliver acupuncture in a room like our fitness room can deliver acupuncture to six people simultaneously rather than just individually. So the price is uh, half of the private sessions. So it really allow, uh, allow patients who need ongoing treatments that have uh, uh, access to lower cost practice of treatment. So I do think uh, we're currently also par- uh, really testing other models of care by collaborating with say community yoga studios to deliver yoga at a much lower cost as well as uh, closer to patients home. Because in order for integrated medicine to become standard medical care, uh, I think we need to make the care high quality evidence-based, but also accessible and also easy for patient to use. Because if we really make it expensive and difficult to access a long-distance drive to, we can continue to really show research findings in journals, but we're not changing the world. So we have to push ourselves to change the world. Great. And you guys are also leaders in education. I mentioned that if, if anybody looks at your website, I think one of the things that I tell anybody from a colleague standpoint to use is the About Herbs website. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think everybody who's listening, who's interested in this area, should be familiar with the About Herbs website and, and all that you provide uh, through that website. So, oh, so Santosh, thank you for uh, referring your colleagues. Uh, about Herbs website was established in, I think, 15 years ago. So today we had over uh, 16 million visitors uh, and from 193 countries uh, utilizing this website. We have uh, 282 monographs uh, carefully curated by uh, a pharmacist as well as uh, medical editors. So basically what we're trying to do is uh, there's a lot of myths about herbs. Uh, often family and friends in the desperate situation to help the patient to say, take this, take that, this can cure you. Oh, don't do chemo, you know, do this herbs. And those can be very misleading and confusing for our patients. So we do a really thorough job in reviewing what is known about the basic research about this herb, the potential mechanism, 
and what is the current clinical um, sort of evidence on those herbs, and what are also some of the historical use. Really putting those information in an objective way for, for patient and family to use. And also really important for a practicing oncologists or family doctors in anywhere in the world. Like I recently at the ASCO meeting, uh, Stanford oncologists say, are you the person who will help run this? I love your website because I feel like it's just another person in my clinic when I'm having those dis difficult dis discussions about whether to use this herb or not. Um, and I really just thank uh, you for creating this website. So for me, I won't take the credit because I didn't create it. I, I'm more of a now just a being the supervisor <laughs> of uh, helping to keep improving this. But I do think this kind of educational effort is really important for those patients because ASCO did a survey uh, in 2018, showed that 40% of Americans believe uh, natural treatments uh, can treat, cure cancer by itself. And I think that is poten potentially very dangerous for people who are diagnosed with cancer because I think we, we think there's benefit for natural treatments, but when you're dealing with a very aggressive life altering cancer diagnosis, you've got to use them integratively rather than forego conventional treatment. Thank you. And, you know, that gets me to my next question. I mean, you and others at your center are leaders in the field of research in uh, integrative medicine for, for cancer. I want to ask you about some of the research that's been done there, but you can also talk uh, about your own research as well. I mean, you have many areas that um, I consider you an expert uh, in when it comes to research in integrative oncology. I want to start first, though, with acupuncture. And maybe between yourself and some of your colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering, what have you shown in terms of the efficacy for acupuncture for different areas? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by asking you first about neuropathy. So the area neuropathy is really led by Dr. Ting Bao, uh, the next SIO president. Uh, she has done a lot of really wonderful study uh, trials uh, from both prevention as well as treatment. Um, actually, um, I, I won't um, give out too much because she is coming to SIO present her recently completed phase two trial. It's a sham control, the randomized control trial of acupuncture to treat persistent CIPN. So stay tuned. Okay. Come I mean, to SIO in <laughs> October. So she's, she, you guys have, and her, her in particular, I think one of the first studies she did was showing that uh, acupuncture can help with uh, neuropathy symptoms for patients treated with a chemotherapy called bortezomib in multiple myeloma patients. And then I think there was a recent publication suggesting that if you use acupuncture concurrently during chemotherapy with Taxol, which is another chemotherapy that uh, can really produce, uh, cause neuropathy, this was in breast cancer patients, that there was some improvement. Tell us a little bit about that. We, we actually do acupuncture concurrently with chemotherapy uh, quite regularly, and anecdotally at least, our patients tell us that they can tell the difference. If they skip a dose, then their neuropathy worsens. If they continue their uh, acupuncture while they're getting chemotherapy, it reduces. So my colleagues actually don't even uh, ask me. They will recommend acupuncture themselves. But what has some of the research been showing, uh, both in terms of treatment of neuropathy and prevention? I, th I think both in treatment and uh, prevention side, uh, uh, Ting and others have really done a great job in showing the preliminary safety and the effectiveness of acupuncture for addressing uh, CIPN, which is very difficult. There's really no good treatment other than duloxetine has some mild benefit, um, and there's really no other therapies can address this. So clinically, just like you, we get a lot of referrals for the use of acupuncture for treatment neuropathy. So I do think uh, Ting is currently trying to... Uh, obtain funding to do the large definitive trial. So until we have the large definitive trial, uh, I don't think we have the definitive evidence, but I do think we have pretty good uh, preliminary evidence that acupuncture could produce clinically meaningful benefit for neuropathy. So it's still an area under investigation, but we have some preliminary evidence that there's a benefit 
yes. which which it's a very it's a very important symptom because out of all the symptoms, neuropathy is something that can persist for years after treatment, and if you're developing neuropathy, it can limit dosing or even affect choice of chemotherapy because many times somebody's already got really bad neuropathy, you kind of cross certain chemotherapy drugs off the list because you don't want to make it worse and worse and worse. So this is just a really, really important area. You mentioned before uh, acupuncture for uh, aromatase inhibitor-induced joint aches. Um, I think you were involved in that research as well, correct? Yes. So uh, so we have done a phase two trial funded by NIH uh, that showed a really large and clinically important uh, improvement uh, of acupuncture for joint aches in women uh, with uh, aromatase inhibitor-related arthralgia. And also another interesting part of this finding is we find uh, among those people who have high expectation for acupuncture, there's not much difference between real and sham. However, for individual who came to the trial with low expectation, only real acupuncture reduced their symptoms. Sham acupuncture did not reduce their symptom at all. So clearly uh, highlighting there's some methodological issues we had to be confronted in acupuncture trial. How do we uh, acknowledge the placebo effect but really control it appropriately so we can study it? But recently, the Don Kirschman's trial published in JAMA provide a, uh, in over 200 patients, provide much larger evidence of acupuncture for this area of uh, sort of uh, pain management. But uh, Santosh, to uh, keep you updated, uh, we have uh, a large trial of, uh, with a target end of 360 patients uh, uh, with chronic musculoskeletal pain. Uh, it will be soon uh, finished next year to evaluate the effectiveness of uh, uh, two types of acupuncture, electroacupuncture versus ear acupuncture for chronic pain in cancer survivors. So that trial probably will provide the most uh, definitive evidence of effectiveness for acupuncture in diverse group of cancer uh, patients. So that touches on a, a couple things. I mean, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, is for those who don't know, what is sham acupuncture? How you know, well, is it, uh, is it administered and is it really necessary in most of these studies? Are there some studies you talked about uh, anticipa anticipation of benefit? Do you think that all acupuncture studies should have a sham arm just for those people who are interested in this kind of research or even in interpreting research? Because obviously that increases the amount of people you have to study as well. Or are there some studies where you say, you know, if it's been shown that there's some benefit of acupuncture, maybe it's we can just accept that it's not placebo. So one thing we have to realize, uh, acupuncture is a complex intervention, just like uh, exercise, psychotherapy, or palliative care, right? So acupuncture involves the specific needling at specific locations, but also involves how to deliver patient-centered care during the process of delivering needle. Because otherwise, acupuncture is never about using a machine just through needles at specific points. So with that understanding, the sham acupuncture is typically involving either puncturing skin or non-puncturing skin, but stimulate the skin uh, in non-traditional acupuncture points. So it is widely known this is not a physiologically inner process. There's plenty of study using brain imaging to show this can elicit, uh, because when you have produced sensory uh, input to the sensory receptor on skin, that sensor input will be passed through spinal cord down to the, the brain and the cortex to produce a physiological effect. So, so it's not a perfect sort of placebo control uh, in the sense that when we do placebo control drug trials. But nevertheless, for certain type of questions, uh, if we ask whether the specificity of the point selections and yielding manipulation in this acupuncture protocol is the reason, for producing this benefit for the symptoms, then sham control is appropriate. However, if the major questions we're asking, how acupuncture uh, compare with uh, implementing into standard care, or how acupuncture's effect differ better or worse than another active treatments, whether that's uh, 
surgery uh, drugs. Uh, for example, I did a study acupuncture versus uh, gabapentin for hot flash uh, or acupuncture versus CBT or acupuncture for massage. If the question is more answering about is it effective or is, is the relative effectiveness, then the use of sham is not needed. So I think a lot of times the choice of control is driven by the research question rather than uniformly saying sham is the only way to study acupuncture or sham is never appropriate. Thank you. And are, are you still practicing uh, acupuncture? You're a licensed acupuncturist. Yes, absolutely. I, I practice integrative uh, medicine consultation and acupuncture. And yesterday I saw eight patients. I love it. Great. It great. keeps great. me uh, young and keeps me invigorated. Sometimes research can be very trying, but really uh, seeing how patients appreciate the therapeutic benefit of acupuncture I think it's really gratifying. You mentioned something. You were talking about auricular acupuncture. My understanding is that there's some application of auricular acupuncture even in the U.S. Army. There's um, something called the NADA protocol, and uh, I've seen articles where um, uh, you know soldiers deployed in the field are actually trained on how to quickly use some acupuncture concepts to reduce pain. Do you, do you know anything about that? Uh, I not only know, uh, I have been teaching battlefield acupuncture, the air acupuncture, as well as, uh, that's the trial I mentioned. Uh, so this is a technique uh, developed by Richard Nimsel, who is a radiation oncologist, as well as an acupuncturist practice uh, in Navy for many years. Um, and it's a, what we consider uh, auricular rapid acupuncture, is well only taught in U.S. military and VA. Uh, as a part of an uh, implementation project, uh, the VA and military have trained over 7,000 providers to deliver this uh, type of therapy for uh, acute and chronic pain management. So in our clinic, we actually also begin to adapt this for cancer patients and survivors with pain. Um, I think the results can be phenomenal. Certainly, it can have some uh, ear pain as a side effect. But for certain type of patients, um, for example, yesterday I saw this patient with phantom limb pain because the pain is not necessarily in the anatomical area you can put needles in. So we did the battlefield acupuncture. The pain uh, dropped from seven to three in a matter of 10 minutes. And the patients uh, just was really grateful because this type of patients have already seen specialty pain management, neurology, was on opiates. You know, it's not like there are great treatments for them. So I think the fact that acupuncture can really pr provide this adjunct of support is just both gratifying for, for myself as well as uh, really um, the patient is incredibly grateful. That's great. And you, you've also done research on how helpful acupuncture is for chronic pain, which is such an important area for us to focus on, especially with the uh, increased use of opioids and how many pa cancer patients have pain and chronic pain at that. What, what have you shown for the effectiveness of acupuncture for chronic pain? So I actually want to uh, highlight two uh, body work that is not done by me, but by folks at MSK. First is uh, Andrew Vickers is a research methodologist and a biostatistician. So he led this uh, acupuncture trialist initiative that analyzed over 18,000 individuals with chronic pain participate in acupuncture randomized control trial using a technique called a, a person data meta-analysis, meaning getting the individual data from all those trial or PIs. He found that overall acupuncture was more efficacious compared with sham, but also more efficacious than usual care control. And the beauty of that is that they recently published a paper showing that the benefit of acupuncture achieved for chronic pain management, 90% of that was retained at one year after acupuncture treatment, meaning that acupuncture was not only effective, but also had durable benefit for the treatment of chronic pain. Another study I want to highlight is by Dr. Gary Dane, a medical director in our service. He recently uh, studied a uh, how acupuncture treat mucositis-related pain in patients undergoing bone marrow transplant. Uh, uh, in a study about 60 people, so it's more of a phase two study, he actually found that people were treated by real acupuncture 
almost nobody went on chronic opiate. And that was significantly less than people who received shaman acupuncture. So here we have a really exciting signal showing that when you incorporate acupuncture in acute pain prevention and treatment, you may have the ability to prevent chronic pain. I think that's actually the holy grail for pain management, to help less people rely on opiate for acute pain management. So we have to deal less with chronic pain. Because, uh, because once you get people on opiate and they rely on, it actually become a real challenge to get them off because many patients do benefit from opiate. So I, I do think uh, our service is doing some really uh, cutting edge research. Hopefully we can get more funding to continue this line of inquiry. And then as a follow-up to that, if somebody has chronic pain, how often do you need to see them? Because, you know, they're not going to necessarily stop having pain uh, after they get acupuncture, right? So, so what do you find in terms of how often you need to see people? So clinically, uh, we see them initially weekly or even sometimes twice a week uh, for up to 10 treatments. So at that point, you will define whether patients responded or not, right? So in our experience, about 60 to 70% of people will respond. So then if people don't respond, they shouldn't get more acupuncture, period. Then for the people who responded, I would say a good proportion of people don't need any additional treatments. But then for certain, for example, neuropathy, if patient responded, they don't often need additional treatments. Oh, oh AI-related arthralgia, many of the patients, I treat them for initial eight to 10 treatments. Then I see them in the breast clinic, like five years later in the waiting room. They say, hey, Dr. Ma, remember me? I'm still taking AIs. Thank you for your treatment, right? So those people, you don't necessarily need ongoing treatment. But then there are certain type of chronic pain patients. Often their pain can be exacerbated by social stress or ongoing treatment. Then you may need to see them ongoing, like say every four weeks, every six weeks as maintenance. Awesome. Well, I want to finish up on uh, kind of my last uh, question for you is about how Sloan Kettering is really a leader in, in integrative oncology and how you're affecting care elsewhere. I know that you guys have educational uh, um, courses for community acupuncturists, correct? Uh, as well as music therapy, uh, applications of yoga um, for uh, cancer patients. How do you feel that you guys are positioning yourselves to uh, affect medical care in the region, but also uh, anybody else in the field of integrative oncology? So we feel uh, to get our field continue to move forward is really uh, 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 take a village. I think MSK really want to work with any academic and community uh, cancer programs around the world to advance the research uh, clinical care and education. Certainly from the research side, we are committed to conducting rigorous trials as well as translational studies to study both the effectiveness and optimal way to integrate uh, uh, integrated therapies in cancer care continuum. And uh, certainly just generating the knowledge is not uh, enough. Dissemination of knowledge is really important. So we are just about to launch a three-hour Fundamentals of in Integrated Oncology online course. And the target audience for this course is actually uh, practicing oncologists or oncology fellows or nurse practitioners. Because not all the uh, current oncology training program have integrated oncology. In order for more cancer patients benefit from integrated oncology, just learning the most basic concepts and um, practical skills to integrate oncology are essential. And uh, certainly, I think we need to engage the broader community within SIO and, uh, and beyond and ASCO to really continue to educate our clinicians on the front line to how do we have conversations with patients about integrative medicine and how do we refer uh, patients to appropriate care. I think working together, we can really make a, a huge difference in the lives of our patients. Well, thank you, June. Uh, I can say that you are making a big difference in the lives of many patients. You're a great leader in the field of integrative oncology, and your energy 
when it comes to leadership with SIAO and with uh, research um, is just making an incredible difference. You're a mentor to many other researchers and people in this field. And I think we need uh, people like you to really push this field forward so that we can really further the science of integrative oncology. So I want to thank you for that. Well, Santos, thank you for um, taking the time. And uh, I love your blog. I think it's a really good platform to uh, disseminate uh, the knowledge base about integrated oncology, as well as to promote sort of thoughtful discussion and further inquiry in this field. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, June. All right, take care. Mm -hmm.